Uh, do you ever look at something and, and, and you've been doing something for maybe a, a long time and you, and you just see no results and in, in, in the exasperation you throw your hands up and you say, uh, let's be nice, what's the point, right? I know there are other phrases that you might use as you walk away from something mad. You go, what's, what's the point of this? What's the point of, of going to the gym, eating right, when this person who eats donuts all day and pizza all day has better results than I do? What's, what's the point? What's the point in, in caring for my, my lawn? I, I like to watch my grass. I'll, I'll stand out there and watch the sprinklers. But what's the point in doing all this when the guy down the street does absolutely nothing yet his lawn's pristine? What's, what's the point? I don't, I don't get it. How come the dandelions grow on my side? Uh, what's, what's the point when you work hard for your promotion and, and then uh, the person they choose for the promotion is the person that you've covered dozens and dozens and dozens of times? What's, what's the point? What's the point of all of this? And we do this with our faith, right? What's the point of following Christ? What's the point uh, of living for God? What's the point of obeying Scripture? When we look around and we see results that are better for people who don't, follow God? What's the point of gathering here on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. or at 9.30 a.m. when in two minutes football kicks off, right? The Niners are playing in two minutes and they're playing the Bears. We are a house divided in our, in our home. But there's a football season going on or there's F1 to watch or there's a whole bunch of other things, soccer games. Why do we come here? What's the point? What's the point of doing this if life doesn't improve much? What's the point? And over the past few years, this question of what's the point has been asked by everyone and almost every single day, and we've all looked to streamline our life. What's the point of doing this? What's the point of this? So I take it away because I've learned what I need and what I don't need in these past few years. Today, uh, across all of our locations at Bethany, we begin the series called Gather, Grow, Go, and we do this every September. Uh, in addition to studying God's word together, these most, what, what they do these, these next three weeks remind us of why we do what we do. What's the point of this? We gather together as believers. We grow together as believers. And then we go as believers. And what they do is it's, 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 this is the core work of the church. Worship, discipleship, and mission. So we've, because those words are kind of boring we decided to make all alliterated because alliteration makes, makes the Holy Spirit show up. And so we do, gather, we do gather, grow, go. It's the G series. We tried to get a fourth G, so we can call it 4G, but that wasn't good enough. And so it's this. Boo. Isn't it now 5G? G5 would be great. Isn't that a jet that all the ballers use? Yeah. Well, today, thank you. Someone laughing. This is encouraging. I pay her. Of we need a laugh track, but today we start by looking at why are we gathering together? What is the value of showing up here week after week to worship together, to sing, to shake a few hands, to have some delicious donuts and mediocre coffee if I made it? What's the point of this? Why do we do this? And it's a great question to ask, especially in our world as we come out of uh, this post-COVID. Uh, sense of living, when we are all renegotiating our lives and trying to decide what's worth the time of our investment, what's worth our energy, 
what will help me grow, what will help me be happy, what will help me do some good in the world. Uh, This time as we go through this series, we're going to be looking in the Psalms. Uh, Today we're going to be in Psalm 73, and in this psalm, a, a man named Asaph, who is David's worship leader, there's debate over whether there were more than one Asaph or whether this was a position, but Asaph's name means to bring people together. He was uh, known to be the worship. He's mentioned in Chronicles a few times, but he, he looks around and he sees those living their lives apart from God and prospering and begins to wonder what is the point of following God. Yet instead of walking away, what Asaph does is he brings his frustrations into what he calls the sanctuary, we could say the temple, what, what they had before Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle, and in the process of that discovers three outcomes, or what we could discern, three outcomes from this psalm that give us a point in why we do what we do, especially on a Sunday morning. We gather for perspective, we gather for guidance, and we gather for hope. And the first one that we'll come across is perspective, and, and here's what I mean by perspective. One, one time I was working with my dad, and for those of you who haven't heard me complain, my dad was a contractor, and he made me do construction stuff, which I'm bad at. Uh, but one time he said, Brad, we're going to paint the job now. Everything's done. The drywall's done. Now's the easy part. Let's paint. I was like, anyone could paint. What's the trick in that? You just throw it on the wall and spread it around, right? Roger, who paints a lot, is like, you know. But this is what I was thinking. This is what I was going to do. So I go there and I start painting. We, or we First, we did all what we should do. We masked the outlets, the, the carpet. We put the cloths down. We got the windows covered. We did everything. We even washed and sanded the walls. We were good. And then he said, okay, this is your room. And it was a little like 12 by 12 room, nothing big. So I start painting it. And then I, I went as fast as I can and I came out. I thought my dad was going to be proud of me. And I said, dad, I'm finished. He comes back and goes, nope, no, you're not. And I like to learn things the hardest way possible. And so he says, do it again. And so I was like, fine, I'll do it again. So three more times of doing this, I come back out and I say, dad, I did it. No, you didn't. It's not done yet. Or this isn't, this isn't good. And so finally, the fourth time's the charm with me. Uh, He comes and, and he watches me, he says, do it again. And he watches me, and I'm taking the paint and doing this, right? The wall's like right there. And uh, he goes, whoa, hold up a second. Back up. And so I take a step back. I said, now my thing doesn't reach. And there was a little lever at the bottom of it. What do you know? And it made it like four feet longer. And I was able to cover the entire wall and stand back and look at it. He says, you're too close to the wall, Brad. You're way too close. You can't see the spots you're missing because you're too close to it. You can't see, he called them goobers coming down the wall because you're too close to it. You're too close to it. Back up. Get a better perspective. Actually use the tool for what it's meant to be used for. And it happens to all of us, whether we're painting a wall or whether we're living in our lives, we lose perspective on things. And when we lose perspective on things, we can't see things very well. Asaph's journal in Psalm 73, which is really what it, what it reads as, it's the beginning of book three in the Psalms, in case you didn't know, there's different books within the book. Uh, he's realizing that at starting this journey, he's having to reorient his life. Most Psalms, if you look at them closely, will follow this pattern. There's an orientation, which means this is how things are. And then a few lines later, the psalmist, whether it's Solomon or David or Asaph or somebody we think was Solomon, David or Asaph, uh, writes, and then there's this time of disorientation 
where they begin to doubt the orientating statement. And at the end of the psalm, uh, there is this final thing of reorientation. It's them coming to a brand new conclusion, a new reality of who they think God is, a new step in their relationship. And I bet every single one of us, and I bet money, and I don't have a lot of it, but I bet all of it, that we've all gone through something like that. We've had a season of orientation where everything seems to be great and figured out. And then something hits the fan. And then now we're disorientation. And now we have to figure out a new way of living. And then we come to a new way of living called reorientation. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. It's not a bad process unless you stop the process. You have to go through all of those steps because each one of those steps allows you to grow. If you're always this, if you're always orientated, you never really think about what's going on in your life. You will never grow past this statement. You'll never go deeper than the orientation statement. You have to become disorientated so you can be reorientated into a new truth. This is how we learn. This is how we grow. This is how we develop friendships with, uh, at work or work friends. This is how we develop what we believe, whom we believe, which is the right way. This is how we ask questions. This is the point of questions. It's not a bad process. We all have to go through it. And so as you open up Psalm 73 and you look at the very first verse, it's an orientated verse. It says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, the second line describes the first line in a little bit more detail. Surely God is good to Israel. That's a great statement. And of course, Asaph, the worship leader for Israel, will say it. To those who are pure in heart. And that's the same pure in heart phrase that we see in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. What that means is those people who are seeking after God for their right motives. They are wanting to know God. They are wanting to be pure in, in their relationship with God. They're pure of heart. It's not the holy people. It's the ones who are attempting to follow God. They're after God. They're chasing after God. It's an interesting phrase. It's a statement of truth. The word used for good is the Hebrew word tov. It's an easy one for y'all. Do you want to say it? Tov. Yeah, it means Good. Uh, in case you're wondering. It's Psalm 73. It's, interesting. it's an interesting phrase because the word good is used in verse 1. And then if you look at the very end of it, the word is good, good is used in verse 28. And what the psalmist is doing, what Asaph's doing, is using a, a bracketing technique when it comes to writing his poetry. It's called inclusio. Uh, it's a function that draws the reader's attention to the, bit, to the main point of the psalm, which is what? God is good. Always, God is good. And then you look in verse 2. So he's having this orientated statement. You can see where he's going, where he's reoriented at the end of it, where God, surely God is good. And then at the second verse, he says, but as for me, so God is good to those who are pure in heart, but me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Or we can say that Asaph started to lose his perspective. We might say that God is good, but I'm having a really hard time believing it. Or I've heard God is good, but I'm just not seeing it yet. I don't see any evidence of this. Or God is good, but I'm beginning to have my doubts. This is what that statement reads like. In many ways, what we're beginning to see is disorientation happening. There's a teaching that comes around, and, and Dallas Willard says it, and he probably got it from someone else because most thoughts are recycled. Dallas Willard was brilliant, don't mishear me. Uh, but it's been around for a while. 
And it says that you become what you think about. You become what you worship. If you think about something so many times, you're going, your thoughts will carry your life all the way to that end result. So if you're thinking about being bitter and angry at somebody, guess what? If that captures your thought, you're going to be bitter and angry with somebody. Your thoughts will lead you astray. This is why Paul says later, let's take every thought captive. Let's not let thoughts control us. Let's control our thoughts. It's the same line as we always think the grass is greener over in my neighbor's lawn, because it is, but the grass is greener over there. And so our thoughts are always over there. And then pretty soon, everything here is going to be neglected. The water's better over there. The air has less smoke if you travel 300 miles that way. All of this is what we think, and your thoughts will lead you astray. Asaph is having one of those moments. He's looking around him, and he's seeing those folks who don't follow God, and they seem to be doing a lot better, and he's starting to ask the the question, what's the point? Why am I doing this? It's okay to have these thoughts. It's okay to wonder about this. But we need to be mindful how much time we spend upon them because we'll begin to lose our perspective like Asaph did. He was too close to the wall and all he could see was just this much in front of him and he couldn't see the grand picture. And he continues in verses 4 through 11. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are they aren't plagued by human ills, and you can kind of hear him go doing the when he's saying this, right? This is his attitude. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Uh, therefore their people will turn to them and drink the waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything at all? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, and they go on amassing wealth. And in, in verse 13, this is where the disorientation strikes fully. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands Innocence. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, is how we started it. This says, surely I've kept my heart pure. Same two words, he's playing on it. But I've been pure of heart, and I've washed my hands in innocence. Yet all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. And Asaph is having a terrible, deep, dark, bad, bad day. We've all had these days, right? If we've seen Dumb and Dumber, it's the part where he says we have no jobs, We have no food. Our pets' heads are falling off. This is the day that Asaph is having, and he's being honest about it. He's losing his faith. What's the point? This is disorientation. Surely God is good. Surely in vain I've tried to. He goes from the top of the world to the bottom of the world. He's too close to the wall, and he can't see two front feet in front of him. All that he can fathom is negative. All the comparisons is how much he's losing. Each of them is actually blinding him to the truth. When we live like this, when we allow our perspective to get taken away by every negative thought we have, we're not getting a closer look or a more accurate view. Instead, what happens is the negativity begins to pull you and pull everything else out of, out of focus. Was Asaph suffering? Yeah, he's having a bad day. 
We've all had him. He's probably had a few bad days. This is probably him venting at the end of his bad days. Maybe, maybe it's been a season of dryness. We don't know. Was they, he was suffering, but were the ungodly really flourishing? Maybe in the short term, yes. But in the long term, no. Pain has this way of blinding us to the truth, and pain has a way of making us feel that we're alone. A few years ago, like many of you, Carrie and I were glued to the news. Uh, in fact, it was part of our day. We, we would wake up, we would do the, the stuff that we had to. We weren't sure what was going on with, with COVID, and we we're just kind of, you know, at that point we were following the rules. And, uh, and so we, uh, we would wake up, kids would play, and then uh, they'd go for a nap, and then we'd turn on the news for like two hours, and we would watch the press conferences and the numbers and everything. And after a while, uh, it started to get so depressing. And then Carrie is the wise one in, in the relationship, and uh, she looks at it, and all of a sudden she turns it off. And I was like, what, what, what are we going to do now? Are we going to talk? What's that? We can't do that. And she says, this is just depressing, and it's affecting us, the terrible flow of bad, bad news. There's got to be something better. We need a different perspective. We were disoriented. Every single one of us was disoriented. We realized it, and we realized that our thoughts are taking us down this way. Why are we feeding those thoughts that make us more depressed, more sad, more angry? We can still keep... a, a aware of what's happening in our lives and not be drowning in the terrible bad news. Asaph had become disoriented and he realized it. His foot, he says, almost slipped. And yet he didn't follow his thoughts and instead of allowing his thoughts to control him, where does he go? And this is where we see the turning point in Asaph. It's, it's in verse 16 and 17. When I tried to understand all this, so he's looking around and he's trying to make sense of everybody in the world over here sinning, really, and having a great time. And here he is, pure of heart, when he's trying to understand the difference of it, it troubled him deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. It's the hinge point in the whole psalm. If you want to build a ramp, it goes up. This is him complaining. This is the climax of the psalm and everything makes sense because of this verse. Until he entered the sanctuary of the Lord. He had no understanding of what was happening in the world around him until he entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Yeah, they look like they're having a great time and everything's going well over here, but they can't see their final destiny. They can't see that they really have no hope. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. He was looking at the gaps in his life. Why are they struggling? What's the point of all of this? Yet instead of letting those questions dominate him, he brought his questions to church, we could say. And not church by himself out in the woods. No, no, no. He brought it to church. He wanted to, uh, he didn't give up trying to reason with him. He didn't give up trying to understand it. He took his truth that he was seeing and brought it to the source of truth. He didn't rely on his truth, nor your truth. And there is no such thing, can I say, as your truth and my truth, okay? There is truth. And then there is your opinion on the truth. And whether you like it or not is your choice. There is 
truth, and God is the author of all truth. We can't make truth subjective to whatever we feel like. So Asaph takes his truth, or what he perceives as truth, brings it to the author of truth so that he can find some understanding. Asaph is having, probably a few centuries before us, a deconstruction moment, right? Have we ever heard of deconstruction? It's when you dismantle your faith and, and theoretically build it back up, although I haven't seen theoretically happen yet. It's just a dismantling of faith. Uh, deconstruction is awesome. Don't, don't mishear me. I love it. I think everyone should deconstruct their faith at some point. Why do you believe what you believe? Question it. Take it out. Begin to understand it. Ask the questions of something of a belief that you've held for a very long time. Hold it up to Scripture. Does Scripture actually say this? Yes or no? If it doesn't, cool, we can get rid of it. But if Scripture says it, then you take this deconstruction piece and you put it back in your remodel and you say, this is a foundational part. The part about deconstruction that's hard, it's kind of like remodeling a building all by yourself. You can knock down all the walls, but you might hit a load-bearing one and everything comes down on your head. So it's best that you look at things very carefully. Deconstruction's great. However, it goes wrong when we deconstruct in isolation. And that's what's been happening for the past almost three years. Questioning faith is wonderful when it's done in community. We doubt or we hear an interesting thought or we listen to a podcast or a celebrity pastor who says something on on the internet or the 30-second snippet on Instagram and we go, yeah, he's right, and we don't really think about it. He might be. She might be. But is what they're saying found in Scripture? Is what they're saying true? Maybe, maybe not. We have to look at it. And then you bring those questions back to the community, what Asaph does. You bring it back to a community of believers to say, hey, I had this thought. Am I wrong or am I right? And then your community speaks into it. This is what Asaph was doing. He had his questions. And he needed perspective. This is what I'm seeing. Am I crazy? Yes. No. You're seeing it correctly. Keep going. And Asaph is doing this. What, what happens in, in deconstruction, and I'll finish my rant on it, I guess, is we allow other people and other thoughts to distort the truth that comes from Scripture. And then ultimately we leave the church, we leave the faith, and we become spiritual but not religious. Or whatever, it's, that's what it was back in when I was a youngster. I don't know what it is today. But we become something other than what we should be. Let's question, let's wrestle, let's have long conversations, but let's do it together. Let's never do it alone because I need your thoughts, I need your perspective, and sometimes you might need mine. Uh, I need to know what God has taught you. You need to know what God has taught me. I need to know what God has shown you. I believe that God speaks to every single one of us. I need to believe what, I need to know what he said to you. It's a good thing. And we need to do it together. Asaph is in the middle of deconstruction, yet instead of going off, knocking all the walls down alone, he takes it to gathered worship. He took his troubles to the sanctuary of the Lord, and then he received understanding. What happens in the sanctuary? They gather together. They might share a meal. They sing. They listen to the scriptures. They're encouraged. Maybe they go to lunch afterwards, or they go to each other's house. I don't know, but it looks a lot like what we do here. Come together, you talk, you encourage one another, you remind each other of what's happening and what God is doing. You remind each other of God's story and the role that you play in it and I play in it. And we gain perspective on what's happening in this world. 
Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, uh, but instead encourage one another. When hardships come, when doubts come, and they will, when deconstruction happens, don't give up meeting together. That's the load-bearing wall you don't want to take out. Keep together. Bring the questions. Lean in when it gets hard. This is the faithful Christian countercultural response to doubts. If deconstruction is about building a better, more honest, and sustainable faith, then according to Asaph's example, it is best that we do it in a community of faith. Asaph comes together, it gets perspective, and then in the middle of it all, he gains guidance. Perspective leads to guidance. We gather perspective. When I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me deeply, and then I entered the sanctuary. God, Asaph then begins to point to the final destiny of those people whose lives are being lived without God, and he's guided, to get, guided towards them. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was made bitter, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you take me to glory. Asaph came to his senses, right? Orientation. He's in disorientation. And now he's rounding the corner and coming back to a new reality and a new orientation towards God. He's living like a beast or the momentary pleasures, always seeking to satisfy his natural urges. However, in God's presence, he remembers his eternal purpose and security. In gathered worship, He's reminded of God's nearness. It's easy to feel isolated when you're isolated, right? It's, it's a dumb statement if you think about it. But if you're constantly by yourself, if you never surround yourself with other people, you're going to say, I'm all alone and I'm isolated. You're right. You are. Yet we complain, I'm just so alone. Yes, because you've isolated yourself. In gathered worship, Asaph realizes something. He's not. Might feel alone. Might feel like the only weird one out here. Everyone else is prospering, but I'm not alone. The presence of God turned his momentary crisis into a, and turned it into a, a truth that he needed to see. I might feel alone, but when I enter the sanctuary of the Lord, I realize I am not. Not only is God with me, I have a community of people around me. I am not alone. When we confess together each time we gather here that Jesus is with us, when we sing songs together here, yeah, you might not like the tune or whatever, but those songs remind you when you hear the voices of everyone around you singing, you're not singing solo. You're singing with others. One of the reasons I I like this room that we're in is whether you have five people here or 50-something, whatever we have today, when people sing, you hear it. It, it's, it, the acoustics in here make you understand you're not doing this self, this church, on your own. You're with other people. Asaph is reminded that he's not isolated. He gains guidance, and he says, you guide me, Lord, with your counsel. The word for counsel means the act of telling someone the truth, the act of telling someone what they should do based on a plan or scheme. Very importantly, he didn't say, you guide me with my circumstances, He didn't say that. He didn't let his circumstances guide him. He didn't say, you guide me with my feelings, whatever I feel. Nope. It says, God, you guide me. God, 
is the guide. God speaks through our circumstances and our feelings, but how many times have your feelings led you astray? I thought in college that I was going to marry this one girl, and so I took two classes with her, and I failed those classes. Guess what I had to do? Repeat the classes. I followed my heart. Oh, it got me into a lot of trouble and got me a worse GPA and it didn't really end well and I had to repeat these classes that I hated in the first place. Can't follow your heart, follow your feelings. We have that saying, but it's not a good way to live. Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful. Paul says we've all sinned. Following your hearts is what got us into this mess in the first place. Why would we keep following them? Jeremiah it, it, it then says this, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots into the streams. It does not fear when the heat comes or the smoke. It leaves, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. How many of you want that? How do we get that? Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, not in their circumstances, not in their feelings. We don't get there by following the whims of our self-discipline or just trying out on your own to grow real tall and have deep roots. Instead, when we plant our feet, when we open our hands and we receive, it's vital that we understand that there is a truth beyond what we can see that's beyond our circumstances. Job learned this. Remember he questioned God and said, why are you doing this, Lord? And God comes back and says, have you seen where I kept the snow? Did you, were you there when I did all of this? And Job is starting to realize, oh, there's bigger things than just my feelings. There's bigger things than just my circumstances. And Asaph is learning this. In the community of God, he finds guidance and it gives him a glimpse to a bigger picture. When we gather together, the Holy Spirit reveals insights about God to us through scripture, through worship, and even fellowship, which is the Christian word for hanging out. People are given words and insights for us. The gift of prophecy is around where you hear something from God and you say, this is from the Lord. And I might say, yeah, I needed to hear that today. This is what Paul talks about in Corinthians. Don't stop that gift. We need each other. We're a body of believers, not individual fingers and hands running around places. We come together and we're useful together. We encourage one another. We guide each other. We receive God's guidance, which takes us from disorientation to orientation. It takes us from doom to gloom and gives us perspective and guides us and reminds us we're not alone. Every time we come here, broken and imperfect, every time we disagree on something, and it might be a lot of things, we point to a new kingdom, a new community that God is forming with us, for us, and we become that kingdom to the rest of the world. And Asaph testifies to this, the final outcome of this. We come together where we receive perspective, we receive guidance, and then he lands on this. We have hope. One of the main reasons we come together is to realize that this whole place isn't necessarily falling apart. We have hope. Asaph confessed it. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory. When we gather, we're reminded that we have an eternal purpose and we have an eternal security. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. You take me to your glory. Who 
have I in heaven but you. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't, I don't know about you, but I like to know the end of the story when I start hearing a long story. Uh, it's that what's the point thing. So if you're going to tell me a long-winded story, do me this. It's a good ending, okay? When there's a movie out and the movie is like a true documentary of what happened, I like to go on Google and say, did everyone live? All right, I can watch this. Did everyone die? Let's turn it off. I don't, I don't want a sad movie. One time on our honeymoon, Carrie and I uh, watched Marley and Me. Yeah, we thought it was going to be a cute movie about a, a white lab, and I love white labs. They're the best. And we're watching it, and then all of a sudden, I'll spoil it for you. Every, every movie with the dog as a lead character, guess what? Dog dies. Okay. And so we're watching it, and, and this is in between our pool times, and we're just like, oh, yeah. And then Marley dies. It was terrible, right? I ruined it for you. Now you know the end of it. But I don't like movies like that. I like to know the ending is going to be good. Okay? Asaph is looking at this, and he looks at the perspective, and he's trying to make sense of everything that's happening. These wicked people are succeeding. He's failing. And he needs to know that he has a hope. That this isn't a movie where everyone perishes at the end. He needs to know that there's a reason, that the point of him following God is that there is a point to that the point is good and that he could hope in something. In our world that is drifting, in our world that's trying to grab onto anything that resembles hope, we can confidently know what the writer of Hebrews says is that we have an anchor that's for our souls. We can understand what Paul says in Romans, that we have a future to look forward to. Not that tomorrow is going to be the best day ever. It might be. It might not be. But the perspective says that the future that we are living towards is going to be worth it. That eternity is in our hearts. And this is a switch from the disorientation that Asaph feels here. He's reoriented to the security that he can only find in finding the Lord. Everybody else is chasing down their own whims and desires and doing what they want to do. But they have no hope. All they have for, all they live for is right now. They're missing it. Asaph finds hope in the study of Scripture. He's reminded of the hope as he comes together. And there's one last nerdy thing about Psalm 73 I want you to see. Uh, When you look at it closely, uh, you start to see the pronouns switch in the middle of, of all of it. And I want you to pay attention to it. When Asaph says that he was troubled by the fate of the ungodly, when you look at verse 1 through 12, the pronoun that he uses is them over there. They are this. They, they, they. When he describes his frustration in thinking and then leading to the resolution that he's trying to find in verses 13 through 17, It's I. I'm looking for this. They, I. When he finds resolution to the problem in uh, 18 through 22, the dominant pronoun is you, Lord. You. And then uh, when he proclaims the assurance of his faith and the fellowship with God, the dominant pronouns become God and me. So he goes from isolation And then at the end of it, he leads back to, I'm not alone in this. The movement from they to you, to you and I, and then to us, 
is that when we gather together for worship, we come into a perspective when we realize that we're not alone. Gathered worship reminds us of the truth that God is walking with us, and we don't need to be distracted by what's happening over there or over there or back there. This is our hope. We're not alone. God isn't asleep. God hasn't left you suffering. God is near. There's a reason why the name for Jesus is Emmanuel, the with us God, the God with us. All of these truths are made evident as we gather together for worship. And then Asaph concludes, or concludes, it is good for me to be near to God. I have made my sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all of your deeds. The good life is not found isolating yourself. The good life is not found in, in, in separating from a church community. The good life, as Asaph says, is found with God. And where does he find God? In the community of other believers. It's located in the close relationships with God in a worshiping community with others. And the pushback that I'm bound to hear later on this week is this. Well, I connect with God most in nature. Good. I'm glad you do. The world is the Lord's. We should. Jesus also did that. So did Elijah. So did Moses. Uh, so did most of the Old Testament writers. But they always came back to a community. They always came back to people who reminded them and confirmed what they were learning out on themselves. Or they said, no, that's not right. Yeah, you can find God and you can connect with God anywhere. But nothing is the same as the gathered worship. You can, uh, you, you can call yourself a Christian, and, uh, but you can't live the Christian life by yourself. Eugene Peters says, says a Christian needs a family. And the family of believers that gives us perspective, guidance, and hope. You can't find that by yourself. It's the same thing as, as we see from uh, the, the latest trend to say, well, I'll just, I'll just listen to a podcast or I'll just watch online. I don't, I don't need to go anywhere on Sunday. I'll watch it Monday night. It's not the same. And I know that online has served a purpose. It's been good for people. You're watching an online service. I would argue you're not coming to church. The church needs a body. The church needs to know that there's hands to be laid on you and pray. A church is face-to-face encouragement. Online is a useful tool. You can watch a service online, but you're not having church. So it's time to make Sunday mornings a priority for us. And I know many of you are here every Sunday and preaching to the choir, yes, but it's a reminder for all of us, this is important. Gathered community for worship brings perspective, guidance, and hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, that your plan for uh, reaching the world wasn't each and every single one of us off by ourselves doing our own thing when we wanted to. But your plan for the world was to invent this thing called the church, where people are gathered in your name to worship, to study the scripture, to be empowered and gifted by the Spirit. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face. This is how you change the world. When you sent Paul out on missionary journeys, you didn't say just go here and do your own thing. No, you said gather people together. Have a church. 
community of people that remind each other about how good you are. And Lord, the church is frustrating. The church is painful. Uh, There's a lot of things that I don't like about it, and I work here. But it's the only plan. It was plan A, and there's not plan B. And so, Lord, we thank you for the church. It's imperfections and its perfections. We thank you that here amongst believers, we can find you. We can find hope. We can find guidance. We thank you for this. We thank you for Jesus, which made all of this possible. We gather in his name for his purpose, for his glory. It's your name we do this. Amen.